0: Hi guys, Rob here, podcast editor for EveryMind. This week you're listening into a conversation with Angela McMillan, counsellor, therapist and mental health specialist. This chat dives deep into how workplaces can change their culture from the top down. If you're a business leader or you think your boss could benefit from this type of approach, head over to everymindatwork.com to get a free trial. If you found this episode valuable, don't forget to share it with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. Enjoy the show. So Angela, welcome to the EveryMind podcast. How are you?
1: I'm really well, thank you.
0: We were just talking about that you're in lockdown at the moment, aren't you?
1: I'm in total lockdown here in Wales. Yeah, I always feel like I have to look out of the window and I'm sort of describing that. Yeah, so I'm <laughs> confined to the house pretty much, it feels like. There's a
0: lot of books behind you, so I'm guessing that's keeping you busy a little bit. Or they're are they um, like my books where they just sit in the bookshelf and you don't read them. <laughs>
1: they're, um, th- there's about half of my therapy books at the moment. So no, they are, they're well loved and well read. <laughs>
0: Good, good, good. Angela, um, can we just start by telling um, everyone listening a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, of course. So my name is Angela or Ange. Um, I'm a a counselor, I'm a psychotherapist. So I do both long-term work and short-term work. I specialize in anxiety and anxiety disorders. I'm a mental health awareness trainer. So I deliver all of the various mental health first aid packages in both England and Wales. Currently in the process of writing my own therapeutic programme for parents and carers of children experiencing anxiety. I run a parent support group, parent carer support group for parents who have children experiencing mental health struggles. So basically everything, mental health in all of its forms. um, Yeah, kind of live and breathe it really
0: yeah and I think that's what maybe makes you stand out from you know not other counsellors that's me generalizing but it sounds like there's a real purpose behind what you're doing because you're doing so much more than just you know seeing seeing patients so um you know can you explain a little bit about your journey and where the purpose comes from
1: yeah absolutely and I'm, I'm really kind of open about this I um a lovely upbringing no kind of question marks around things but i would say i probably had anxiety from around the age of 10 but i didn't actually know that that's what it was by the time i was 15 i had a bit of a tricky time at home left home kind of went to college carried on but throughout all of that time i had quite significant mental health struggles but again had no had no real idea that that's what it was i actually thought that that was just my normal. I became a youth worker and worked with um, young people who were at risk of um, not being employed and not being in education. Became a Childline volunteer counsellor and then trained to be a counsellor. And then I've worked all over the place for um, MIND, um, the Terence Higgins Trust, the YMCA and kind of specialised in working with young people with anxiety. So I was probably about 38 when I realised that I had anxiety and I'd probably had anxiety for all of that time. And it sounds a bit ridiculous when I'm sort of describing that, you know, this is what I specialised in, but it was an absolute revelation to me for somebody to turn around and say, actually, do you know what, do you think this is anxiety? And then realizing that there was something I could do about that. And I sought help and got treatment and changed my whole life, changed my whole outlook and realized that actually that kind of purpose that you talked about is really about helping people identify. If you are having a mental health struggle, you don't have to deal with this on your own. Sometimes you don't realize what that is, um, but, you know, have being signposted kind of understanding that actually, Things could potentially be different for you. Um, that's that's kind of where that mission and that purpose comes from. And I guess there's a part of me that wants to take care of that 15 year old me who mm. maybe could have benefited from a little bit of help and support during that time as well.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the questions that I was going to ask in terms of anxiety because you know when we're looking at anxiety and depression, they're probably the two you know mental illnesses that are more normalised of you know all of the others um, and you've spoken there about when you obviously was diagnosed with anxiety or you was told it was anxiety that empowered you because then in a way you knew there was something that you could do about it. Whereas, you know, for other people, sometimes being told that you have anxiety, they almost let that empower them. And that almost becomes their, um, you know, their DNA. And, you know, in a way that becomes more difficult. So in your experience, in terms of, the kind of question that I'm trying to allude to is when do we know if it's anxiety or when do we know if it's just we're worrying about something?
1: I think there are a couple of things there. I always view any mental health struggle as it's part of you. It's not all of you. And if we can find a way of separating that part, then then we can choose to work with that or live with it or do something about it if if we want to. I think the difference between having anxious thoughts and having an anxiety disorder is when it starts to impact on the whole of your sort of daily life functioning. And people's normal are different right so my normal might be different to yours so my idea of kind of feeling anxious might be quite different to the next person's so I think it's always important if you can to kind of check in with yourself you know is is what's happening inside me whether that's thoughts feelings or behavior are they impacting on how I would normally carry out my day-to-day tasks you know are they affecting my relationships And I think if they are, then that's always an opportunity to think about whether whether you want to go and seek help or not.
0: Yeah. And I think that is, you know, anxiety, as I say, is one that people speak a lot more about. And, you know, I've experienced it myself as well. And obviously mine came after you know losing my dad to suicide, which I'm very vocal about. And I think what you just said is there is really key. It's, you know, not letting the anxiety, the grief, you know, anything that you're experiencing define you but in a way know that it's there and you can get past it you know allowing that to empower you too and and how much have you seen you know I hate talking about it but the pandemic and coronavirus impact anxiety because from the data that we're seeing it's at an all-time high so have you seen it from your patients and, and the work you do
1: it's been really, really interesting. At the beginning of the pandemic, what I was finding was young people in particular who had a diagnosis of anxiety were actually thriving mm. because they were suddenly a lot of the pressures being in school, having to deal with social situations were gone. So they could be quiet if they needed to be quiet. If they needed to be feel introverted, they they could be their true self. And I think coming out of that, that's when I started to notice a spike, when there was an expectation that we had to go back to, I hate this phrase, but this new normal, whatever that is. Mm. And uh, so so with young people in particular, I think with, with adults, what I'm noticing is just very, very elevated levels of stress that are tipping into anxiety, whether that's being diagnosed or not. I think people are really struggling to switch off I think a lot of us are working from home at the moment, a lot of people I work with who run their own companies um, or are part of big organisations, everything happens from the comfort of your home which means there's no transition time, you don't get the chance to get in your car, you don't get the chance to blast your tunes out as you're driving home or to have a conversation with yourself about how your day's been and I think that has been really impacting and I'm kind of noticing what sort of looks like burnout in a lot of people at the moment just kind of very high levels of emotion as well
0: yeah no that's the, that's the same as what we're seeing across the companies and the employees that use our platform the biggest insight that we found when we looked at the anonymous data was employees are struggling to switch off you know they're struggling to put their laptops away or to have that you know morning and evening kind of routine as well and like you've said that leads to burnout. i really like what you said as well how is it stress tipping into anxious thoughts rather than anxiety? And, and on that kind of question, I hear it a lot. You know, I've got really bad anxiety today. Do you feel like there's a fear in us using words like that too casually that almost in a way can um, negatively impact the seriousness of, of an anxiety disorder?
1: It's super hard because I think it's really, really important that we're in a place at the moment where people are talking about mental health. They're talking about well-being. They're talking about mental health struggles. And I'm always kind of reluctant to put my own thoughts or feelings onto the person sat in front of me. But I think understanding the difference between stress, between anxious thoughts and between an anxiety disorder, is really important Mm. because, you know, there are varying degrees, I guess. Um, But who am I to say what your anxiety feels like? So it's kind of, I guess some of it's about that kind of psychoeducation of helping people recognize the differences, helping people check in with themselves. You know, what does that look like? How do I feel? You know, a lot of people have no idea what's happening sort of below their chin. We're not in contact with our bodies. We don't know what our stress and our anxious thoughts actually feel like or what that means. And I think if we can move towards educating people there and helping them learn about themselves, then I think that full range of explanation around what what a diagnosis is and what a kind of non-diagnosable condition is, you know, we can still offer the same support whether you have a diagnosis or not. Very, very similar things work, whether you're stressed or whether you've got severe anxiety. So hopefully as language moves forward and it evolves all the time, doesn't it? That hopefully, um, hopefully we can start to make those clearer distinctions for people.
0: Yeah, no, again, it's when you were sharing your story of growing up, being young, feeling different, but not really being able to put a name to it. Like, that's where the education piece comes in, right? You know, it's the same with, you know, talk about my dad when he got diagnosed with depression. It was very quick. We were very dismissive of it purely because of our education, right? You know, why are you depressed? You've got nothing to be depressed about because we didn't understand the you know, we didn't understand depression, we wasn't educated on it. And, and I think, as you've said, we're going to have this period where people might misuse language, but as long as we're talking about it, I think that's key, right? And I think um, on that, if, if someone's listening to this, and I know obviously a lot of HR professionals, sort of business leaders or people within a workplace listen to this podcast, if one of their colleagues was, was struggling with anxiety, um, and obviously we're in quite a sort of remote world at the moment, what advice would you give them to support that other individual?
1: Honestly talk to them find out from them what they need. I think sometimes what happens is we get this label this diagnosis or this idea of what a label means and then we shoehorn everything into this little box depending on what our own frame of reference is So I think it's really really important for HR teams for all of us just as human beings to educate ourselves but also to check in with that individual you know how do you want me to help you obviously we don't want to be leaving a member of our teams or a member of our staff isolated and alone as you said in a situation when we're already isolated and alone you know it's important that we check in but to just make sure you know maybe a daily check-in is too much talk to them what feels appropriate they're struggling with their sleep is it appropriate to be contacting them at nine o'clock in the morning what if they're on medication that means that that affects their sleep maybe we could have a check-in call in the afternoon you know all of those things I think make a huge huge difference to somebody that's experiencing anxious thoughts or anxiety and actually you know the more we reach out and try and connect, even if we're met with maybe what feels like a block or a barrier, I think don't underestimate how important that is. If it's done appropriately and it doesn't feel like a box tick and you're actually doing it because you genuinely care about that person, they will feel and sense that intention from you. And that is the stuff that will bring people back into the workplace again, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. I love that. And I, you, you're probably the same, but I get asked the question a lot of how do I help someone if they don't want to be helped and that's the kind of answer that i give is it's it's up to that person to want to seek the help but what you can do is you can let them know that you're there and that intent that i'm there if you ever want to talk about it is key because if they feel like they want to talk about it they know they can turn to you um and yeah it's a a huge topic at the moment isn't it anxiety and i think if if you don't mind and i like the way you said it it was so individual um what does anxiety feel like to you
1: (sighs) anxiety feels like to me it's interesting actually because I was thinking about um, just before we kind of came on to to talk to each other and kind of thinking about well what does anxiety look like we have this kind of we have an idea I think again it's back to that label or that sort of that notion of what mental health struggles look like and we kind of think anxiety kind of looks like something and actually I just jotted down it's kind of next to me of anxiety for me looks like perfectionism. Mm. Anxiety for me looks like I'm going to do the best I can for you as your employee. That means I say yes to everything you ask me to do. That means I will go far and above beyond your deadlines. Um, I don't know what no is. So you'll keep bringing me the work because I'm the one that gets it done. And I'm a great employee. I'm calm, I'm quiet. Some people might argue slightly differently. <laughs> um, I won't take breaks. I'll work longer hours. So I think sometimes for HR professionals or within teams, sometimes our quote like good staff are the ones we kind of need to be mindful of. So Mm. the ones that are super quiet, maybe a bit um, kind of sitting back in themselves, but the ones that say yes until before you know it, they're doing half the team's work as well. And everyone loves them because who doesn't want to go home early while somebody else does that final task? So anxiety can look like, it can look like that. And it can also look like procrastination. It can look like somebody hitting the deadline at the very last minute. It can look like teams feeling overwhelmed because that one person appears to not be pulling their weight because actually they're so overwhelmed or they're so worried about getting it wrong that they're afraid to put pen to paper or to type the first word in case, in case they get found out. Mm. So it can look like imposter syndrome as well. You have a high flying professional who seems to have everything together, but inside they're feeling like a little child. They're feeling scared, they don't know what to do. It can look like sitting in a meeting and somebody not saying a single word for fear of getting it wrong. And it can also look like for me, certainly, I'm sweating. I used to wear, I'm wearing black today, but not for this reason. Um, If I had to do any kind of presentations or sit in any workplace, I would always wear black because sweat would literally run down my arms. It was absolutely debilitating as a teenager and then as a professional person. Mm. Imagine sitting next to your colleague and they're going through all of that and you won't even know because they're not going to tell you. So I think it can look like it can look like lots of different things. It doesn't always look like missing work or skipping appointments or being ill although it can, there are other more subtle presentations of it as well, I think.
0: Yeah, I really like that. And that really made me think about how I manage my anxiety and and the way I manage my anxiety is to be the loudest in the room, the joker, the one, you know, bantering with everyone. And I did that because I was anxious and insecure, right? And now when I see people doing similar... I have a massively different, imp- you know, I, I see them in a different way. So I really like that because again, we naturally wouldn't feel like the employees that look or act a certain way might be dealing with anxiety naturally will default to the ones that are struggling with their work, you know, very open and honest about them, you know, struggling to come back to the workplace or whatever it is. So with it being so different, you know, is, is it going to be difficult for us to, To tackle it because you know as you say it's so individual right um so does that come back to kindness like you know compassion and kindness is that really how we can tackle this because it's so individual
1: I think compassion and kindness should sit within everything we do as as human beings I think connectivity particularly in this disconnected world that we're currently in um I think just kind of Things starting at the top, so you know your organisation. There's there's a, a top downness to that, and there's an openness and honesty that starts at the very top of your organisation and then kind of filters through. And I think it's wonderful if organizations send people on courses and they download things like apps and they do all this work. But actually, everybody needs to be doing that. The senior leadership teams are the ones that drive the organizations. If your boss is taking care of their own mental health and well-being, then their staff will as well. If your boss is working 15 hours a day, not taking breaks, not checking in with anybody, not talking about their own mental health and well-being, I can pretty much guarantee that a percentage of staff will be following that and will be doing the same thing. And that's where the problems start. it echoes through. So I think we all have a responsibility to ourselves, if no one else, but to check in with each other. And if we have got line managers or bosses that are doing that with us, we create an openness in an organisation. And that is the stuff that drives change. That is the stuff that makes the most difference.
0: Yeah, I really like that. And that's something that we speak a lot about too, is is you can have initiatives within the workplace, but if you don't tackle stigma, no one's going to access that support. So um, obviously I know you do some work within companies too. And obviously as we're talking about that subject what have you seen some organizations do that really create that open culture or really kind of support their employees is there anything that stands out to you
1: the stuff that really stands out to me apart from the the people at the top of the organization kind of modeling this stuff is if you are and again it's diff- more difficult now but if you are a manager and you're stuck in your office and you're kind of not checking in on anybody but maybe you have done mental health first aid courses or similar then that's not gonna help anybody if you don't get out there. And actually the organizations that have mental health champions or mental health first aiders or ambassadors who are present, and I don't just mean here I am sat at my desk, come to me whenever you want, which can cause a bit of stress and anxiety in people anyway, but to just be out there, you know, just be you, be social, say hello to everybody, let them know that you're a human being too people are much more likely to come to you when they're struggling, if you feel like you're a real person and you haven't done this as a box ticking exercise. Mm. So the organizations I've seen that have made the most difference have had a team of people. Um, They talk about mental health and well-being all the time. And it's embedded in the organization that it's just part of the culture rather than, oh, here's another bolt on that we've got to do because that's an obligation. And the truth is, If it's a box ticking exercise, you're you're not going to see the results of that. But an organization that embeds this your staff will stay, they will love you, they will love working for you, they will wanna work harder, they will wanna stay late if you need them to stay late. Like you get those you get those benefits and then you get a team of people that are gonna stay with you for a long period of time. And, and as employers, who doesn't want to have a core team of people that don't wanna go anywhere? We don't wanna be re-recruiting every three to six months. So those are the organizations I think that, that can truly make a difference.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's funny because we see that all the time, right, where, um, you know, an employer might onboard our app and – the engagement rate might be quite low right and you know they're pushing it but you know no one's really signing up uh, or people are but they're finding it difficult and then there's organizations that's on board and their engagement rates through the roof and and then I start speaking to them and you find out the ones with the engagement that's through the roof have done stuff before you know they've done they've got champions they've been pushing the conversation etc so you know it's about trying to do more than just have an initiative and that's really what we're about is it's being that well-being partner rather than it just being an app the app is part of our overall sort of eco structure where we're trying to really help support businesses change that culture you know find the evidence-based interventions and I think as you've just said from our research like champions is a very good way of doing it because I'm passionate you're passionate about mental health I'm sure there's employees out there that are passionate about it too Get them to champion it rather than just be the HR team, just hammering it down everyone's throat, like get them to be a part of that as well. Um, and when it comes to sort of mental health awareness training, and you were speaking about the top down, you know, there's always this kind of misconception of the top down, not really getting it, not really understanding it. Um, so in your experience, have you seen like education is key for them to get them to understand it? So it trickles down.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's back to that if we all take responsibility. So if I'm the CEO of my company, you know, I have to take responsibility. What am I doing about my own mental health and well-being? How do I actually genuinely feel about this topic? You know, I know, quote, that I should be doing this, but actually do I want to be doing this? Because if you are at the top of your organisation and maybe you kind of have a few question marks around what mental health struggles look like, Then of course it's going to be more difficult for your staff to talk to anybody about their mental health because they're going to sense that within the organization knowing that you can have a mental health day that you can take some time off if you need it for your mental health struggles knowing that you work in an organization that understands that if you're in the position of being able to offer flexible working hours to actually be able to model that and helping employees stay in their jobs because they don't have to get up at six o'clock in the morning. If actually they're on sleeping medication, you know, that they don't have to stay late. If actually that causes them high levels of anxiety, like starting at the top, how, how you show this to your teams, that, that will change everything really, really quickly. Actually, if it comes from a genuine place, you can make a really big difference very, very fast.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's, it is that, I think it's that vulnerability as well. And I think with senior leaders, there's still this misconception that being vulnerable goes against your performance. You know, and um, if I'm a senior leader and I stand up and I talk honestly and I'm a human, they're going to judge me that I'm not a high performing, you know, worker. And, 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 and I think that's changing slowly. And again, from what we've seen, I did a, 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 um, a talk at a company called Mercer And I shared my story and you've got, you know, whatever, 100 people in the room and vulnerability always personal experience always kind of gets people talking in that in that room. But then the amazing thing that Mercer did is they got four, was it four? Yeah, four employees to then share their story on a panel, which I facilitated. And there I am watching in awe these guys and and, and girls just sharing their personal experiences. And the colleagues were like stunned because they'd never heard of this before like they they work with these people on a day-to-day basis they have lunch with them in the canteen and now it's like oh wow i never knew that and just seeing the different dynamic of those people in that room because of that experience and that was within as you said 20 minutes of them sharing their story so um i'm totally with you on that it can happen a lot and what advice would you give to someone if they do want to maybe share their story but they're hesitant to do it
1: I think I just want to say amazing by the way like my whole face just lit up because <laughs> you said that I kind of get chills when I hear stuff like that I've worked in organizations similar experiences where I've been told no one will talk to you about their mental health and yeah, then you know within 20 minutes people are sharing stories for for the because
0: first everyone time. Everyone has it isn't it it's like every, everyone has it and it's this I don't think anyone will engage and as soon as again this is where kind of I get into a bit of a debate but I think if you put the human side to mental health, people will engage. There's still this misconception that mental health is just, you know, about the brain and, you know, let's go clinical on it. If you put the human side to it, everyone's got mental health and people can engage with that. So I get excited like you do as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: I think um, what you were saying about like, what if you're reluctant to kind of share your story? I think I always say this to people, whatever I'm doing, keep yourself safe emotionally. It is your story. It doesn't belong to anybody else. It's not your responsibility to tell your story if you're not ready to do that. And I think if your heart or your gut is saying no, then don't. And pick your people. So if you're thinking about telling somebody how you're feeling, you might not want to go to your HR department in the first instance. You might want to chat to a friend or a partner or a loved one. Just kind of test that out a little bit and then just see how did i feel after i said that or maybe you don't want to talk to somebody that that knows you maybe you want to book a session with a therapist there's plenty of free helplines available check in with somebody see what it feels like to say it out loud and then when you're ready of course you know i absolutely welcome with open arms people sharing their lived experiences um but it can take its toll and i know personally I only started sharing my story when I started delivering mental health training. And I thought initially that that was helpful for my groups and helpful for me, but actually I've had to pull back from that and be really mindful about just how much I disclose, because also I don't know who's in the group. I don't know what they've been impacted by. So, yeah, so it's okay to to tell as much or as little as you're comfortable doing. There are safe and confidential spaces where you can talk, where that isn't going to be gossiped about if you're concerned about that, you know, that actually, you know, you you can maintain and protect your own confidentiality. That's an absolute priority for me, I think.
0: Yeah, I love that. And that resonates with me because it's something I've had to learn as well. You know, switching to a remote sort of worlds. I've been doing lots of webinars and I did two webinars in one day and I said to my team I'm only going to do one a day and then um, me being the guy that I am the perfectionist the people pleaser I did four the other day in one day and I come off and I was like wow like there's almost this sounds you'll see what I mean here but sometimes when you robotically say it it then impacts you even more because I'm like I can just robotically say this now. Like I'm I'm not feeling this anymore. This is just me, you know, delivering it. And um I also the advice that I always give to people is similar to yours. It's, you know, I am very vocal about my own journey. Um very vocal about it. But what people forget to realize is I didn't even talk to one person about it for three years. You know, then it was a therapist for six years, me reading books, writing down, you know, I used to have a journal that I would write it all down in. Then it was like a blog post. Then it was a bit of videos. Then so it's this sort of eleven year journey, and same with you. I might overshare, and then I don't share that again. And it's that constant journey um, that I think we're all on. Would you would you relate to that?
1: I relate to that one hundred percent, and I think particularly there's something. And I don't know whether whether you find this not with client work online, but with webinars There's it feels like there's an extra layer almost. So it's like there's like an invisible wall. And I think you're right about kind of being mindful when the story stops kind of having an impact. I think there can be moments afterwards where certainly I might feel real kind of dysregulation of, of you know, is there something wrong or um, or it might kind of catch up with me later on. So I think I would say to anybody that's thinking about sharing their story, again, just, just kind of take care of yourself afterwards as well. It might feel okay in the moment, but what can you do afterwards to support yourself? So if you do feel a bit overwhelmed, maybe you feel a bit worried, then just make sure you've got strategies in place. Well, you know, there's tons of wellbeing strategies, self care strategies to just kind of look after you, too.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I made sure I made sure that that morning I went for a run. I did what I needed to do because I, I was I was getting prepared. Um, I want to talk about therapy if you don't mind because I'm I'm a big advocate of therapy, and um, one of the things that I feel, especially in the UK, we struggle with is going to therapy when we are looking to prevent what could happen. I feel like we only go to therapy when we're at crisis, when we're broken, right? And um, is in terms of your experience as a therapist and your own personal experience, is there a good time to go to therapy or is it something that we can all just go to?
1: I honestly think go to therapy, full stop, whatever you're going through, good, bad, or somewhere in between because it can be absolutely life-changing. It can be life-saving, but it can be life-changing. I think you're right about people wait until they're in crisis often before they come. I think often what we tend to do as human beings is we discount a lot of our warning signs, like, oh, it's only a week, it'll be all right, oh, it's only two weeks, so it's only three months or six months. We keep pushing, pushing, pushing away. If you're finding that that's happening, and you're pushing away whatever it is, your your stress, your worries. I honestly think that is the time to reach out. And it, you know, and as I said before, it doesn't have to be paid for. You know, there are plenty of services out there where, you know, albeit there might be some waiting lists, but you you can access services wherever you are with whatever you earn. And I think the sooner you get in, we all know this, right? Early intervention is key. It, it does make a huge difference. And the longer we lead things, the longer we lay down those neural pathways where our brains and our bodies think this is the way, the longer it takes to unpick that and to unpack that. So yeah, go go to therapy (laughs) is my recommendation. And the other thing I would say is, if you don't like the person that you have made an appointment with, don't go back. Do not work with a therapist that you don't like. You will not get the same outcomes. Relationship is everything. It really doesn't matter what model of therapy they're using in the first instance, your connection to them, that is the stuff that will help you on your journey. And sometimes view therapy as a first step, yeah? You don't have to do it all in one go, yeah? Go for six sessions, go for 10 sessions, press pause, recalibrate, consolidate, Go back in two years' time, do another piece of work. It doesn't have to be you've got to unpack your whole life in one sitting. Um, but yeah, therapy is therapy is great if you find the right person.
0: I love that advice. That's really good advice. Um, and yeah, my yeah, I I use the word don't be afraid to shop around, which probably isn't the right way of putting it. <laughs> I love that. It is that. You know, it's I've had so many people that have said to me, "Oh, therapy didn't work for me." And I say. What do you mean therapy didn't work for you? Well, I went to see a therapist and it just didn't help. I said, well, therapy didn't work for you is a broad statement. You know, that therapist didn't work for you. You know, there's so many different types of practices, people. And even Anne, the lady who helped me, she was more of a holistic therapist. You know, she was the third one out of three years that I went to, you know, and it was that she was the only person that I felt safe and comfortable to, to, to disclose to and to talk to and yeah and I completely related again which I thought was amazing advice of don't think that you have to go every week for you know the next however however long um you know it's with with Anne I've been going since I was 21 and there's times where I didn't go for like a year and then we'd re- I'd reach out again and I'd go back and I'd always discover more and learn more um, And yeah i I totally totally relate to that so one question that i want to ask you is when it comes to anxiety there's always advice to use coping strategies and i often question are those coping strategies almost not a cure but a real good way of preventing anxiety or is there something a lot deeper that's sort of causing that anxiety that you might obviously need to go to therapy for um what advice would you give on that
1: I think definitely um, self-help strategies can be tools for the toolkit. So I am a big advocate of finding things that work for you on a day-to-day basis. I think sometimes it depends what is driving the anxiety. So if, for example, somebody has experienced a trauma or a traumatic event, then, some of the symptoms of that could be symptoms of anxiety and therefore a lot of the coping strategies for anxiety or anxiety disorders might not actually be that helpful for you. If you think about that fight, flight or freeze response, if you are If you're in that kind of flight response because you've experienced a traumatic event, um, then things like exercise will actually perpetuate that in a way. So it absolutely is helpful. We know know the neurochemistry of things like moving our bodies. We know it can improve mood. Um, But actually, if we're using that as a form of defending against underlying feelings, then I think it's always worth... Checking in with somebody about that and things like mood journals or kind of keeping a record, kind of monitoring your mood and seeing whether there's anything that activates you. Thinking about when you do employ your self-help strategies to just see if there's a pattern, because then therapy can help you get underneath that. So if it always happens every Tuesday and you know that's when your morning meeting is, that gives you an opportunity to figure out what do I need to do about this and to perhaps look at what's underlying that. So, yeah, it depends on the strategy. It depends on what the person's facing, really. I think everything has its place. And sometimes we just need to get out of the door, right? Um, Which is why some of those kind of cognitive behavioral therapy strategies can work. But actually, if we're talking about something that happened in early childhood, those strategies aren't necessarily going to see you through without them kind of coming back later on.
0: Mm, Yeah, I I agree with it massively. Um, And I think, uh, you know, for me, a lot of, the way I tried to deal with my anxiety was those band-aids on that kind of wound that's there. And, and, you know, you're consistently putting more and more on and almost in a way it's running away from those problems and trying to distract yourself from those problems. And I think my dad was very good at that as well. You know, you spoke about perfectionists and perfectionism. One of the, um, a guy I know, Rory O'Connor, he studies suicide research at Glasgow University, he talks about social perfectionism in people that end their own lives. And, you know, my dad was definitely a social perfectionist in making sure that everything around him looked perfect, because inside he was, you know, feeling the way that he was. And it was interesting to hear you talk about anxiety in a way is sometimes perfectionism, is we want to make sure everyone sees us this certain way because we're kind of protecting, you know, who we are inside. Um, I'm cautious of time, Angela, and I could ask you more and more questions. Um, but one of the questions I do want to ask you, and I know this is very difficult to answer as well, but is there is there some advice you would give to people to not, for them not to do or not to say to someone dealing with anxiety?
1: I think, I mean, this is obvious stuff, I think, but you don't just get over anxiety. Yeah. Yeah? You can't just kind of walk out the door if you're scared of going outside. You can't just walk into the canteen if the canteen makes you feel anxious. You can't just have a conversation if you are overwhelmed with fear about talking to somebody. So I think whatever your own thoughts and feelings are about what's happening, try and hold them inside. If you are feeling super frustrated because that person isn't doing something or you want them to be doing something and they're not, just try and be present. You don't have to fix this. You are not responsible for them or their behaviour. The best thing you can do is to walk alongside them, check in with them, ask them if there's anything you can do to help. Let them know that you're there. And if you are feeling frustrated or upset or you want to blurt something out or maybe you're feeling angry, just try and find a space for yourself where you can vent that away from that relationship so that that doesn't, have an impact on that person. I can pretty much guarantee to you, the person with anxiety feels frustrated with themselves. They already feel like they should, quote, be doing more, um, or they shouldn't be doing whatever it is that they're doing. They're already having this internal dialogue and questioning themselves. Hearing that reflected back in somebody else just adds to feelings of shame and dysregulation. So if you're able to hold that, and just be the supportive human being that the person with anxiety needs that is the thing that will make the most difference and remember that you don't have to fix this so if you are super worried about somebody seek help for yourself get some advice you know if you're worried about their well-being or their safety think about what you can do to help you so that you can help them that's the thing I think
0: that would make the most difference. I love it. Amazing advice. Really good advice. Um, Angela, really, really grateful for you coming on. I'm going to ask you three quick questions, um, <laughs> just to mix it up a little bit. And I always yeah. change what questions um I ask. But the first question, by the looks of it, behind you, as I said, um, what's what's one of your favorite books that you've read recently? Favorite books
1: that I've read recently. Oh my goodness, I'm going to have to look behind you. Um. Karen Traisman is writing a lot of stuff on I'm working with trauma with um, adolescents what else am I reading Uh, I'm doing because I'm writing a parenting course at the moment so there's a lot of therapeutic parenting books (laughs) at the moment Um, yeah that's that's probably Uh, it for now
0: what was the author of the, the last one you just said
1: Karen Traisman, she's a doctor, Karen Traisman. She's a, an amazing psychologist that does lots and lots of work around developmental trauma and how um, how to work with teenagers in particular. Um, there's some brilliant strategies that I use with adult clients as well. She's got tons and tons of books.
0: Nice, amazing, we'll check that one out. Um, three things that you're grateful for right now.
1: I'm grateful for living in Wales, where I can look out of my window and see trees and fields. I'm grateful for my friends who have kept me grounded and stable during this time and I check in with them every day we've got a little group together um I'm grateful for my lovely husband who's upstairs at the moment working hard um yeah I'm grateful for the humans in my life
0: amazing I love that it's amazing how people naturally default to that as well like I would always default to the people in my life and you know, still we're so consumed by the materialistic sort of items in our life. But actually, when you think about what we're grateful for, it's always the humans in our life. The third question is a bit more deeper, and I apologise, Angela, because I haven't prepped you. Um, what advice would you give to the ten-year-old you?
1: Ten-year-old me, I think she just needed a bit of extra support. I think at that time, I'm 43 now, so at that time in the 80s, we didn't really talk about mental health or mental health struggles. I think I was very good at kind of hiding how worried I was about things. Um, I think I would have wanted to just take her by the hand and let her know that she was okay exactly as she was and that she didn't have to try and be this kind of perfect human. And that I'd also want her to know that actually her future was going to be pretty cool in the end and yeah that it was
0: all going to be okay i love that really cool um angela where can people find out a little bit more about you if they want to connect
1: you can find me on linkedin under angela mcmillan um all my company is elemental health i've got a facebook page and an instagram page i've got lots of wonderful followers come join me connect um i'd love to i'd love to have more people on board
0: Amazing. We'll link up to that in the um, in the show notes as well. But from me, thank you so much for, for taking you. the time out for this podcast. Um, really insightful. As I said, it could have gone on for probably another hour. Um, but yeah, really appreciate you taking the time out, Angela.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to meet you.
0: No worries. Enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Thank you. Bye bye.